Good morning. We're in the uh, fourth chapter of Ephesians. And let me read here. Paul writes, he says, I'm a prisoner in the Lord. Or I, a prisoner in the Lord, encourage you to live the kind of life which provides that God has called you. Be humble and gentle in every way. Be patient with each other and lovingly accept each other. Through the peace that that ties you together, do your best to maintain the unity that the Spirit gives. There is one body and one Spirit. In the same way, you were called to share one hope. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over everything, through everything, and in everything. God's favor has been given to each of us. It was measured out to us by Christ who gave it. That's that's why the Scripture says, when He went to the highest place, He took captive those who had captured us and gave gifts to people. Now what does it mean that He went up except that He also had gone down to the lowest part of the earth? The one who has gone down also went up above all the, the heavens so that He fills everything. He also gave apostles, prophets, missionaries, as well as pastors and teachers as gifts. And I'm glad he did that. Aren't you? To his church. Their purpose is to prepare God's people to serve and to build up the body of Christ. This is to continue until all of us are united in one faith and our knowledge about God's Son. Until we become mature until we measure up to Christ, who is the standard. Then we will no longer be little children, tossed and carried about by all kinds of teachings that change like the wind. We will no longer be influenced by people who are using cunning and clever strategies to lead us astray. Instead, as we lovingly speak the truth, we will grow up completely in our relationship to Christ, who is the head. He makes the whole body fit together and unites it through the support of every joint. As each and every part does its job, He makes the body grow, that it builds up itself up in love. Amen. Let's open our Bibles once again to Ephesians chapter 4. We're turning a corner here this morning, getting into the second half of the book of Ephesians. taking us a little while to get there, but... um, it's been a, a wonderful ride, I think, in the first three chapters because of the, the teaching that Paul gives us there is so rich. And and so now we have the hard job of applying that. So a worthy walk is what we'll be talking about today. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 2, a worthy walk. We live in troubling times. If you've been at all aware and had at least one eye open, you know that we are in troubling times. And many are rightly concerned about the direction of our society, our country, our world, and even churches. Life very well may become more difficult for us. And for those of us who try to live the Christian life from a biblical perspective will find that it might become risky to do that. Now, I don't want to minimize the trouble that we already face and the trouble that we may likely face in the future. 
But I want to say to us all that for Christians, for the church, this should be an exciting time. Not that we're happy about all of the bad that's happening in the world, but you see, as the world around us gets darker and bleaker and more hopeless, as they become more angry and self-centered and hateful, the church and its gospel shine brightest. We were made for times like these. We don't rejoice in their sin. In fact, we, in, in the appropriate opportunities given, we expose them. But this is why we're here. The world is lost. They hate God. That, that's no surprise. And they hate those who love God and who follow God. That's no surprise. But we were made for this. We were made to shine brightly the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he does that through the church. Remember, we just saw that where at the end of uh, his prayer, when he gave that praise at the end of chapter 3, he's telling us there that God's power is working in the church and so this is a time for maximizing His glory. Paul said there at the end of chapter 3, Now to Him who is able... You see, we, we look at the world around us, and I know you turn on the news, you pick up the paper, it, it, everywhere you look, the society around you, and you can get depressed, discouraged, ready to throw in the towel, or ready to pick up a gun or something, which is what most people are, or not most, many people are doing, Right? Why are there so many shootings? People are angry. That's why. And the world is stirring up more and more anger. Things are bad. And they're responding in wrong ways. But this is a time for the church. This is a time for maximizing His glory you see, you get discouraged, but we forget now to Him who is able. There's someone more powerful than the world around us. There's someone who is able. He is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us. And then what does He say? To Him be the glory. Where? In the church. And in Christ Jesus, because the church is in Christ Jesus. To all generations forever and ever, amen. But you see, now is the time for the church to maximize the glory of Jesus. The glory of God. Because the world around us is so dark that it's easy for us to show the light, to shine the light of the gospel. It shines brightly now. Even brighter than it was before. And I know we, we a lot of times think upside down. We think, you know... You know, if we could just get the world to be in a better place, in better condition, and society to be in a better condition, then, boy, we could really get the gospel out. That's upside-down thinking. Now, would I love to have, you know, I've got good neighbors right now, but I've had bad neighbors in the past. Do I want good neighbors? Yes. Do I want nice people out in society? Yes. Do I want people that, you know, respect God and, and, and honor God? Yes. But will it be easier to preach the gospel? No. 
I mean, just think about it. I've told some of you this, that uh, talking with some of my um, fellow seminarians as they've graduated and gone on, they talk about when they go to the Northeast, which it's called the burned over district because the gospel, well, a form of the gospel was preached over and over and over and over and over to where people just don't want to, didn't want to hear about it anymore. They had, you know, gotten saved so many times that they're done with that. And so now they don't, they don't even, a lot of those people, if you ask them, who is Jesus? They honestly don't know. I mean, they've heard the name and they use it you know, in a bad way, but they don't really have any idea who Jesus is. They don't know hardly anything about the one true God. They don't read their Bibles. They don't even own Bibles. They said it is so refreshing to be up there because, yeah, you know, it's not like you're in the buckle of the Bible belt where, you know, people, at least up till recently, have more or less acted, you know, with Judeo-Christian ethics. But they said it's refreshing because you don't have to get them unsaved first before you can get them saved. They already know they're not saved. They don't know who God is. So you get to tell them for the first time, this is who Jesus is. This is who God is. That's the kind of world we're even getting to here in the buckle of the Bible belt. It's around all of us. The world is so dark that we should be able to, to say, wow, Lord, not happy that things are worse. But this is a time to maximize your glory. Use me, use us in our church to maximize your glory. Now, you might be thinking, though, how could Paul seriously think that God could be glorified through the church? I mean, the church is made up of a bunch of broken people, which is us, right? We're all broken. We're in the process of being fixed, if you will. But we are broken. But you see, based on the rich teaching of Ephesians Chapters 1 through 3, what we just completed, John Stott said that Paul sees an alienated humanity. That, that's a good description, right? He sees an alienated humanity being reconciled. A fractured humanity being united. Even a new humanity being created. It is a magnificent vision. What he means is this new society is the church. This is where it's happening. We're not going to get that world out there to be united. That's not going to happen before Jesus comes back. But it's going to happen here. It has to happen here in the church. This is the only place it can happen. And so, if God is to be glorified through the church... It is going to require new standards. Standards that are distinct from the proud, self-centered, hateful world around us. And when you look out there in the world and you see the way that they think and they act and they talk about us and each other and, and you see the hatefulness, you ought to say, Lord, make us shine brighter. Make your gospel shine brighter against the backdrop of such such darkness uh, in the world. And so in Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 2, Paul says, Live in a manner that is equal to your calling, manifesting Christ-like character and manifesting Christ-like response. And that is to be done toward one another. Live in a manner that is equal to your calling, manifesting Christ-like character and manifesting Christ-like response toward one another. 
when we read Paul's letters in the Bible, we see that consistently what he does first is call out doctrine, lays out doctrine for us, and then he calls us after that to live accordingly. So, okay, now, based on everything I've said, I want you to live this way. And that's exactly what we'll see here today. We first need to learn, then we need to act. We, we can't put it the other way around. I know what you find typically in the more liberal thinking of the world is that, you know, we don't need doctrine, we need to just go and do. And a lot of churches have bought into that. We just need to go do. But that's dangerous. Some protest doctrine divides. But sound doctrine, I say, motivates. Sound doctrine guides our actions. You see, yeah, you know, we could all just say, hey, let's just forget doctrine, let's just go out there and do. Let's just go out there and serve. Based on what standards? You know, you might do it very wrong. You might break a lot. You may offend God a lot. You may blaspheme Him and encourage others to do the same. We need sound doctrine. In Ephesians 1 through 3, what we've just completed, the first half of the letter, Paul lays out sound doctrine. And not surprisingly, there's only one command in all three of those chapters. Now, I know when we preach it, we preach it like it's all command, right? Because we're supposed to learn and do, right? But there's only one command in chapter 2, verse 11, a command to remember what you once had, you Gentiles. But in chapters 4 through 6, there are 40 commands. You can see there's a very different vibe in the two halves of the letter. The one is teaching, it's doctrine, and the other is application, command. Amazingly, as one writer put it, Ephesians contains more specific practical applications for daily life than any other New Testament book. Even more than Romans, as big as Romans is. Even more than 1 Corinthians, as big as it is. Ephesians is packed with a lot more practical application than any other book. So I'm excited for us to get into this application section of the letter. But at the same time, I know it's going to be hard. That's why we had that beautiful set of, of three requests in Paul's prayer at the end of chapter 3. So let's talk about the structure of the book a little bit. We're at a, we're at a turning point here. We're at a juncture where we need to talk about, okay, where are we? So moving on to the, into the outline, the first part I want to look at is just to show you that there's, there's two sections of the book, or two halves, right? We just finished the first half. Discover the vastness of God's love in calling you. And we ended on that high note of, of, of just that, right? The end of chapter 3. And then what we're now embarking on is the second half, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And so that idea of walk is going to govern the rest of the book, basically. So we're going to find the walk command. We can go to the next slide. And the walk command is going to happen, uh, we've got five different times. Walk in unity, walk in holiness, walk in love, walk in light, walk in wisdom. And so that's what's going to give us the structure for the rest of the book, this idea of walking, right? Okay. So now let's go to the next slide. We're going to break that first part down, walk in unity, which is where we're at right now. First 16 verses, and this is what we're going to see. 
First, an exhortation to live equal to your calling. First two verses we're looking at today. And then in a couple of weeks, after our, remember we have our uh, missions, uh, one of our missions conferences this year, there'll be this next Lord's Day where the Quins will be here and we'll be blessed by them. After that, we will come back to verses 3 through 6, an exhortation to and a basis for unity. And, and really, that's the theme of these first 16 verses. But we need to understand, you know, the call to unity and then why, what's the basis, you know, the, the groundwork for unity. And we'll be talking about that. And then we'll, we'll continue on into that part of, the, of this section, number three, growing together toward unity of the faith. And see what Paul does is that whole section about growing until you become, uh, you as a church become this mature man, if you will, this, this mature new organism that while growth and maturity is a big part of that and it's important, what that means is you're growing in unity, you see. So the growth is not just that, you know, all of our heads swell because we know so much or just growing because we're so busy. You know, those are good things, growing in knowledge and growing in action. But the test of it, we're going to see that. How do we know if we're growing as a church? Are we growing in unity? That's that's the question we need to ask because that's what the way Paul lays it out. Okay, so that's kind of where we're at and where we're going. Now, as we get into the text... First, walk worthy of your calling. Walk worthy of your calling. Let me read verses 1 and 2 to get us started. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6 is another one of Paul's long sentences. There's 71 words in it. Uh, he's had, he's, he has longer ones, believe it or not. But an important first word we need to think about is the word therefore. And, and that starts us off and shows us. It, it, it's a, a delineation there saying, okay, we've got a, a change in thought here. I'm going from doctrine... And I'm now shifting into application. So, based on everything I've said in chapters 1 through 3, therefore, what should you do? And that's where he's going with this. He's established that we have a new position in Christ. And he's established that we as the church are being built together into God's eternal dwelling place. And the idea is, because those are true, you must live by new Standards. You must live by new standards. And we need to talk about what are those standards. So, now, before we go into those, why did Paul introduce himself a second time as a prisoner? You might remember from the start of chapter 3, he, he said that. He, he called himself the prisoner of Christ Jesus. Now he calls himself, and literally, the prisoner in the Lord. And I don't think any of the English translations put in there, they should, that's it, what it is literally, in the Lord. And the idea is that although he is a prisoner in jail, 
Something more important is true. He's a prisoner in the Lord. Think again that idea of sphere. He is in Christ, inside the sphere of Christ. And what that, why he says that is this. Even though he's in prison, he's still their apostle. And he has the authority, and with his authority, he exhorts them to live out what he just taught. And he exhorted them here with a sense of urgency. The word he uses here, while it can mean something like uh, the NAS has entreat, for example, um, some of your translations will have entreat, urge, beseech, or beg. But really, it it's, reads a little stronger than that. And so I think exhort is a, a better, more appropriate word for what he's trying to accomplish here. Now, those others are fine. But you see, what he's saying here is is going to be followed by commands. And so it's not like, well, I'm asking you to do me a favor. He's, he's telling us what to do. And so exhort is, I think, a little stronger and a little more appropriate. They must walk in a certain way. See, this is not optional. And that's kind of the point. This is not, he's not saying, you know, here's a good suggestion, take it or leave it. No, he's saying, here's a command, take it. Right? You, you have to do this. Now, you must walk in a certain way. Let's talk about that. this walk. The, first, the, the occurrence of this word walk here in verse 1 is doing double duty. Okay? So, on the one hand, it's basically serving uh, as, as, as an umbrella or a heading for this whole section, this whole second half. So, he says, walk in a manner that's worthy. Okay? And we'll talk about what that means, but... What he's saying is that, okay, all the walk commands, remember I showed you on the slide, all of those different five walk commands, they fall under this one. Walk in a manner worthy. Okay, what is what does that mean? And then he will break that out. And the first is going to be walk in unity. So this walk occurrence, the second way that it's being used is to... For, to introduce this idea of walking in unity, okay, which is the theme of the first 16 verses. Okay, So it, it serves overall as a heading for the rest, but it introduces this first call to walk, walk in unity. Walk, walking pictures the believer's conduct or lifestyle, and, and this is not an unusual metaphor. We find it back in the Old Testament. You think the, you know, you know, your thy word is a lamp to my feet. You know, says where I walk and talk about the path, path of righteousness and all. But it describes how you live, how you behave, how you conduct yourself. It's a way of life. And because this is in the aorist tense, one of the past tenses, what he's saying here is that they need to change their lifestyle from what it had been. See, we have a continual need to change. So, stating it the way he did, they would have understood that, okay, something, I need to change. Because I've, I've been walking, been doing okay, but he says, in a manner worthy. So, we always have to keep working on that, right? And continually 
bring our, our lifestyle into line with what worthy means. It's not going to happen automatically. It has to be a diligent pursuit. It has to be um, something that we choose to do. Now, walk in a manner worthy or walk worthy. Worthy means literally, uh, in the, the theological dictionary of the New Testament said this, bringing up the other beam of the scales, bringing into equilibrium. And think here of, you know, those old style scales, right? We have the two sides and the two little trays where, you know, you would put in like, okay, so let's see how much money this amount of grain would be worth. And they would put the appropriate weights on one side and they put the grain in there. Okay, that's how much it weighs and they, and they until they get it equal. And so basically worthy means just that, to bring those into equilibrium. Basically, he's saying that your lifestyle must be equal to your calling. And each of the exhortations that are going to follow, the exhortations to walk, they must happen with this goal in mind. You must live up to the level of your calling. So when we say, and we'll look at in a couple of weeks, walk in unity, that's bringing that into equilibrium, right? Bringing up to the level of your calling. So imagine that you could put a price tag on the quality of your Christian life, the way you walk, your way of life, your conduct, the way you think and all that. Let's say you could put a price tag on that. And then you, let's say you could put a price tag on the calling you've received. Okay? When you put those in those scales, do they equal out? Or is it more likely that the price tag for your conduct, you know, it doesn't even come close? That the calling outweighs it so much that they're not even, there's, you're not even close to equilibrium. And so that's what Paul is putting into their, planning into their brains for them to think in terms of. <clears throat> so, in order for us to know, okay, how do we bring them into balance? We need to understand what this calling is first. <clears throat> so what is this calling? And we're going to have a little theology lesson here, so we're going to do a, a short version of it. We're going to talk about what this idea of calling is. First, there, calling in, in Scripture, and especially in the New Testament, is used in two ways. There's an external call and an internal call. The external call, Acts 17.30 God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent. That's an external call. That's a call that goes out to everybody. Everybody should repent. However, not everyone will repent. Not everyone will come. Jesus said, for many are called, but few are chosen. Matthew twenty-two fourteen. So that's the external call. Many people are called all everywhere, but not all of them are chosen. There's also an internal call. It is not merely an offer. It is not merely an, an invitation. It is effectual. Those who receive these, this internal call most certainly come to Christ. Why? Because of the way it happens. Remember, think back to Ephesians 4, or 2, uh, verses 4 through 7, where Paul told us about regeneration, being given new life. 
So what happens, logically speaking, that's all really happens at one time, but logically speaking, what happens is a person is regenerated. In other words, they're given new life. And when they have that new life, they're also given ears to hear and eyes to see so that they can recognize the Savior's voice. They can recognize the gospel. They have the ability then to come. But they most certainly will. Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them. John 10. And he also said in John 6, All that the Father gives me shall come to me. You see, so these these this term uh, calling is one of the, we call them uh, election terms. It's part of the doctrines of, of God's sovereign grace. The internal call, when it goes out, because the person has been regenerated, they most certainly will come. It's not like the external call, which goes out to people, and many of them, most of them, don't respond positively. Even some of those who are the elect, until it is their time when God is going to save them, and has chosen when the Holy Spirit, John 3, remember, He sovereignly, like the wind, goes where He wills. Until that day, even the elect reject that external call. It's when they are regenerated, then now they hear the internal call. And they most certainly come. So, what we're talking about in Ephesians 4.1 is the internal call, the effectual call. Um, this is the Lord's sovereign call to salvation. And, and it's a, it is a sovereign call. Because... It, it is, as Jesus said, all the Father gives me shall come to me. And so when that call goes out, they certainly come. Okay? <clears throat> Let's talk about this internal call a little bit more. First, it's tied to the doctrine of election. Paul said in Romans 8, and, and here's these, these election words, if you will. Those who are called... He foreknew, predestined, called, justified, glorified. You see, these are, these are things that are going to happen, that God has ordained will happen in the lives of His elect, or as He calls them there, those who are called. Second, this calling is a heavenly calling. It originated from God. And it also puts us in, on, in the direction of heaven, where we're moving heavenward. That's our goal. Paul said that he pressed on toward this heavenly goal. In Philippians 3, he called it the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And we've seen once already, and we're going to see again, as Avery read earlier, this calling comes with great hope. So Ephesians talks about that more than once. And then 2 Thessalonians 2, it is a result of God's love. Remember when we were in Ephesians 1, verse 5, and we talked about God, that it was in love that He predestined us. A lot of people look at the, the doctrine of election, the doctrines of God's sovereign grace, and they, ah, oh, that just sounds so harsh, and, you know, God saying, I'll save them and not them, and, you know, and they forget that this is all out of the love of God. And so we find in this Second Thess Thessalonians passage just that, that this calling flows from God's love. Third, it is a holy calling. 
where in Second Timothy one nine, God saved us and called us with a holy calling. It is a holy calling, and there's that tie-in with the the word worthy. You know, worthy of your calling. Live in a way that's worthy of your calling. It's a holy calling. Fourth, it was not based on our merit. Paul goes on to say there in that same verse, our calling was not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. See, it wasn't about our works. It wasn't that God looked and said, okay, I'm going to find the people out there that, that are worthy... You know, they're doing, they're going to do good works and all that, so I'm going to call them. No, He calls and then He creates us for good works as we've learned already. So what were we called to? And this, this is, again, a, a little bit of a recap of what we've learned in Ephesians 1 through 3. This glorious set of truths. What are we called to? Ephesians 1 through 3, that God chose us to be His holy people. He predestined us to be adopted into His family. He redeemed us through Christ's blood. He made us His inheritance. He sealed us with His Holy Spirit. He brought us to a spiritual life and raised us up with Christ. He saved us by grace. He created us for a life of good works. And He made us into a holy temple, one that He plans to live in for all eternity. That is our high calling. That is why it matters how we walk. We must walk in a way that is equal to that calling. Okay, so then what does that look like? Number two. A worthy walk is behaving like Christ. A worthy walk is behaving like Christ. First part of verse two. So walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, how? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love. So it's a word, it is behaving like Christ. So that's, this is what it means to, to live worthy or worthily. First, he says we must possess humility and to, to possess it in the highest degree because he says all humility. What he means by that, in the highest degree. So, well, you know, I, I'm humble, you know, once in a while, a little bit. No, in the highest degree, you're, you're to shoot for the ultimate in humility. And this word is used in contrast to self-seeking, boasting, pride. Literally, it is a lowliness of mind. That's what the word means, a lowliness of mind. And, you know, what's interesting is you don't find this word in in pre-Christian literature in Greek. Why? Because they despised the word. They thought, as a trait, this is terrible. You should never be lowly of mind. You've got to be proud of yourself and, you know, and put yourself forth. And, 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 and so the, if they ever do mention it, they despise it. But Christ came and he showed us what true humility is like. Because the world didn't know what it was like. And... Any thought of it to them was offensive. But Jesus was the ultimate example of humility. When Philippians 2, Paul tells us, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And you remember that. that was The cross was, was considered despicable. If you had... It was so degrading. And you're like, your, your Savior died on a degrading cross? Your King died? That was just like, mm-mm. They despise that idea. 
But if we were to be like Christ, there's no room for pride or arrogance toward one another. Pride divides. Humility unites. And that's what Paul's trying to drive home to us. We've got to have this humility if we're going to build toward more and more and more unity. Second, we must possess gentleness in the highest degree. The word all really does double duty here for both of these words. So all gentleness, just like all humility, all gentleness in the highest degree. This is a fruit of the Spirit. You know, if you've memorized that, I hope you have. Uh, if you haven't, I hope you do. Um, the fruit of the Spirit, we need to keep those in our mind, and gentleness is one of those. It carries the idea of mildness. It's the opposite of being rough. Jesus described himself in Matthew eleven twenty nine as gentle. The same word. And then humble in spirit, which is actually, that word is related to the word we just saw, humility. And, you know, the world would look at that. They, they hated that first idea of humility. They didn't like this idea of gentleness too much either. They, ah, oh, that's weakness. And even today we have to be careful. You know, when, when you, you talk about gentleness as a Christian, you know, there are people today, even in our circles, that, that kind of bothers them a little bit. Yeah, it sounds weak. And Jesus wasn't weak. You just need to go read. He was not weak. Gentleness is true strength. And to help us think about that a little bit more, uh, Dr. Honer explained in his commentary about this word gentleness. It implies the conscious exercise of self-control. Let's stop there for a second. So, self-control, that is strength. You know, when your brother or sister in Christ is, is, you know, behaving in an unruly way toward you, Self-control is strength. That's why you don't punch them. That's why you don't, you know, tell them off and whatever you might, you know, or say something just hateful. Self-control, you see. And that's what gentleness, gentleness has built into it, this idea of self-control. That's what the word is, is it brings out. And so he goes on. It implies the conscious exercise of self-control, exhibiting a conscious choice of gentleness as opposed to the use of power, for the purpose of retaliation. In other words, you, you don't punch them. Only the person who is controlled by the Spirit of God can truly be gentle. And that's why Jesus is our ultimate example of gentleness. That's why he would say, I am gentle and humble or lowly. And we need, we need that. Now, I agree that you know, gentleness implies strength. And Jesus had strength perfectly. He exercised it perfectly. And there are times, I mean, if somebody starts, you know, saying, well, you know, I, I don't think that, you know, Jesus is fully God. Okay, we still have to be gentle. But we do have to be strong. And we have to say, well, you're wrong on that. Because the Bible teaches clearly that Jesus is God. And we can sit down and we can look at the Bible. And if they want to maintain and keep going, like, no, I'm still, that's what, I don't believe he's God. It's like, okay, well, then you need to go somewhere else. But we do that with gentleness. You know, we don't yell and shout and, you know, drive them out like that. We do it gently, but we can do it with strength. You know, and I know people use the examples of Jesus cleansing the temple. He was not a hothead. He had perfect self-control in that. 
and he was cleansing the temple for his father's glory, not his own. And he did it with self-control. Third, we must possess must possess patience. It's the opposite of being short-tempered. Like gentleness, it's also a fruit of the Spirit. The ancient writer Strabo used it to describe, and I like this picture, the hopeful endurance of a people whose city is under siege and they're, they're planting turnips in hopes that they'll be able to eat them before their city falls. You know, I thought, what, now that's, that's hopeful endurance. It's like, okay, we're under siege and it's, you know, we're probably going to get taken over. Eventually the enemy's going to get in, the army's going to get in. But we're planting some turnips and hopefully we'll get to eat them before the city falls. You know, and, and it's just comical in a lot of different ways, but it's that hopeful endurance. Um, it also is used of God in many places. God is patient with sinners. Praise the Lord, He is. A believer who is patient is one who endures without losing hope. There's a lot we have to endure in there. As I was talking about the condition of our world, the condition of churches and everything... You know, we need to be patient. Patient with God, what He's doing, His plan. And have hope in what He's doing. Third, what does this look like? What does a worthy walk look like? Well, it's behaving like Christ. Now, third, a worthy walk is responding like Christ. Okay, so it's not just your behavior, but the way that you respond. The last part of verse 2. Showing forbearance to one another in love. The idea here is is bearing with, for example, the differences of others in the assembly. Um, and and even if they are behaving in an unruly m- manner, you know, you're, you're bearing with them. The idea is that you persevere in patience until the difficulty has passed. You know, you don't get to the point where you, you, you say, well, you know, I've been patient up to a point, but I've had enough, and now I'm going to tell you off. And, and no. Now I'm going to start yelling at you. No. You persevere until the difficulty has passed. That's what forbearing means. And say, well, sometimes that could be a long time, John. Yeah, I know. But we have to forbear with one another like that. It forbids losing one's temper. Forbids giving a sharp or sarcastic verbal response, much less being physically combative. It's not that. And forbearance is to be done in love. We're going to have a lot more to say when we get to walk in love. But remember, this love, agape, is is the, the giving, the other-centered love. It, it seeks the highest good of the other person. And so, love is going to bear with a, an unruly brother or sister out of a desire to see them grow in grace. See, that's, that's one of the things we need. To help us do this is to remember how He qualifies it. It's done in love. You know, it's like... Well, I'm doing it, you know, because Jesus told me to, Paul told me to, you know, the preacher said we got to do this, you know, kind of. That's not in love. You think about, okay, I'm going to bear with them because I want to see them grow in grace. I want to see them come to a place where they have, they do change to be more like Christ. I want to see them grow in holiness. That's why we forbear. It's not just, you know, okay, I'll just, you know, kind of take my licks from them and, 
you know, the way that you know, like some of the uh, the flagellants and others back in the you know they would beat themselves and all you know, and um, the um, like in the early days of the church. You know, I just you know if I walk around and you you know hit me, you know that okay, I'll just take it. No, it's like if they're being unruly toward you, you're bearing up under it. Now, I know there's sometimes a place where, you know, we need to speak up, we need to do something about it, maybe there needs to be church discipline, whatever, okay. But we're bearing with one another for their sake, for them to grow in grace, to grow in holiness. These are not easy traits to exercise consistently. It's not easy to exercise these toward those who are different. You know, Jesus said, you know, you, you know, those are nice to you. It's easy to be nice to them. But I want you to be nice to those that aren't nice to you. I want you to love your enemy. People have differing views on things. Again, I'm, I'm talking about people, we, we agree on the fundamentals of the faith. And there's other things outside of those fundamentals, the, the primary level doctrines. There's other things that we differ on. It can be hard, I know. That's why Paul prayed, remember, in chapter two in that or chapter three in that prayer, verse sixteen, for the power of the Holy Spirit. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to do that. And you find yourself saying, Lord, yeah, yeah, that brother of mine in church, you know, you know what I'm talking about. I'm really having a hard time bearing with him, forbearing that. What do you do? You cry out to the Lord, Lord, I need your spirit. I need you to empower me to do this. I can't do this in my own power. And what happens? Then God gets the glory. Again, that's what we come back around to that. Bringing glory to God through the church. You know, so, I don't know if this has happened to you where you've had one of those situations where, you know, you and a brother or a sister, you know, it's just, you know, it was hard, really hard. And maybe they said some things to you about you that were not kind and so forth. And, but you, you bore with them. And then years went by. But then after a while, they come up and say, you know, things that I I said to you about you, I sinned against you. Will you forgive me for that? And then there's that the beauty of that restoration. That's what he's talking about. That's where you, you come to a place where the, the Holy Spirit in His own timing does His work. And... The sweetness of that unity, which is the theme of this section. So, weigh your life against these Christ-like traits. Then begin working on making the improvements as needed. We got we have a, a hard row to hoe, hoe ahead of us, and we're going to need the power of the Holy Spirit. We need to pray for one another so that we can 
always be making a change in our walk. Better, better, and better. More and more Christ-like. It's a step-by-step journey. That's why he uses this idea of walk. Okay. And, and so let's pray that for each other. Let's work on that together. Because let's take advantage of these days we're in. Mourn over the sin in the world. Grieve over the state of churches. But rejoice in the work God has given us. As the church, we are His primary vehicle for glorifying God in this age. And may may He indeed bring glory to Himself through us. Remember, we were made for times like these. This is our call to battle, not to go fight, but to bring God's glory out to the world. And remember, it doesn't look like it, but Jesus promised us that the gates of hell, yeah, they look awful formidable. And in our own power, they are they're impossible. But Jesus said, I promise you, they will not be able to stand when you want to break through them to bring the gospel to the lost world. They will not be able to stop you. You want proof? The majority of us here are proof. Most of the people here, at least the adults, are saved. Many of the young people. We are all proof that the gates of hell are not as formidable as they look. This is our job. These are our marching orders. As we think now, continuing our worship, on the one who made all of this truly possible, we think of Jesus who died on the cross. And, you know, we think, oh, to, to be, to have that lowliness of mind that Paul calls for, is that even possible? Well, Jesus did it. And if He did it, He can empower you and me to do it. And as our example of humility, remember these words, Philippians 2, "...have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although He existed in the form of God, He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but He emptied Himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That is where we turn our attention to now. We turn our eyes to the cross. That is the perfect example, the ultimate example of humility. He died so that we might live with Him. He was separated for a time from His Father so that He could make us to be permanent members of God's family. So that he could build this church. And we will, the whole church, one day be the dwelling of God forever and ever. That was through his work of humbling himself to the point of death on the cross.